We've been in a study over the last few weeks, and we're going to try to finish it before Christmas so we can get into Christmas, but I, we may not finish it, but we're going to try. We're looking at the five smallest books in the Bible. The ones we looked at Obadiah, we've looked at Second uh, John, we've looked at Philemon. Today we're going to look at Third John, the next week Jude. And as I was studying Jude, I realized you can't do Jude in one week. So we're going to start it and then probably to pick it up after Christmas. But today we're looking at Third John. And I've asked Elizabeth to come up because I'm still getting my voice back from the problems I had a couple weeks ago. And she's such a great reader. So I'm going to ask Elizabeth to read the entire book, which is only one page. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Third John is at the very end. The last book of the Bible is Revelation. The next to the last book is Jude, and the next book is 3 John. So you can just pull a Bible out of the back of the pew, and let's read. Good morning, church family. Join me as we read 3 John together. Greeting, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Amen. Thank you. Third John's a great little book and very similar to Second John. Uh, the difference is that he begins to name people. You'll recall in Second John, yesterday, last week, we learned about a lady and children and chosen ones and all this. And the part of why John did not use names was because the church was under persecution. And so even here, he doesn't name himself, he doesn't name the brothers, but he does name a couple of people, Gaius, Demetrius, and Diostrophes, and we're going to look at them in just a minute, but I want to get the big idea. What is the big idea in this book? And I want you to write it down. It is this, you are going to imitate. 
And you can put someone, something, somewhere, somehow. You are going to imitate. So imitate good. That comes out of verse 11, but it's out of the whole book because we're going to see it. So just remember this. You are an imitator. So imitate good. So many people think they're just themselves. Nobody is just themselves. We all imitate. Let me open up an illustration as we start, and we'll look at this in just a moment. About 15 years ago, um, I was taking a trip of high school and college students to India and Nepal. A couple of the fathers here at church, we said, let's take our kids and other people. So we got a group of about 20 of us together, and we spent two weeks. We were in India, then Nepal, and we come back to Miami, you know, and it's about a 24-hour series of flights. Actually, it was probably 36 hours of series of flights back. We finally get to Miami, and we go through passport control. If you've ever gone international, it's huge, especially Miami, which is one of the worst airports to enter the United States. There's these lines that go on forever and ever. So I've got every, I've, we haven't lost anybody in two weeks. Everybody's doing great. They all know what to do. We're all in line. But when you get to the kiosk, everybody has to go individually through to talk to the passport person, right? I can't, because I'm not related to them, take them with me. And my kids already knew how to do it, so I wasn't worried about them. So we all go into different kiosks. So now this group of 20 is all down the line. I'm looking at them, and there I am. And the guy takes my passport, and he looks at me and looks at the passport, looks at me, looks at the passport, pushes a button, unbeknownst to me, and in come very quickly two guys with the big guns to me. Now, everybody else is not watching because they're all worried about getting their passport out and all the rest. And they take me away. And I go, you can't take me away. I got 20 kids here. They take me away. I didn't realize there's a jail in the Miami airport. I was in jail. There is a jail. I was there. And I said, what are you doing? They said, you can't call anybody. You are stuck here. And I said, how long am I stuck here? They said, we can hold you for 72 hours. That 24-hour thing, I don't know where that is. 72 hours. I have people, we were all going to reconnect at the, you know, where you get the luggage, the luggage uh, place, you know, downstairs afterwards. I'm thinking, I got 19 people there, and they don't know where I am. And so I said, I got to go to the bathroom, got to go to the bathroom. So I took my phone out and I called someone to let them know, even though I wasn't supposed to. So I said, just go home, get my bag and go home. I'll figure this thing out. So hours later, I go before the magistrate. There's a judge at the Miami airport. (laughs) I mean, I thought you did planes and came and went. I'm in front of the magistrate, two armed guards and a bailiff who was kind of an older guy, my age exactly, looked like my age. He was from the Miami um, uh, Sheriff's Office in the green, and the other two guys were with the guns. His was holstered, and I'm there in front of the magistrate. And the magistrate says, you're accused of being an arms dealer. (laughs) An arms dealer. I go, what? I said, I just took kids to India and Nepal. And he goes, you are accused of it. And until Washington clears you, you are here. And I can hold you. So I'm there. And they ask me all the questions. Of course, they have my passport, so they have all the answers. And, you know, I wasn't thinking that all the places I go to are where people sell arms. 
all through the Middle East, all through Latin America, all through the various places. So in my passport are all these stamps where obviously this guy did. I said, tell me. They said, there's a Bill Mitchell, your height, born your year, your month, and your day, who's an arms dealer, and we think it's you. I go, look at me. This does not look like an arms dealer. So it was interesting. They go, what's your birthday? I go, you know all this. And they said, what's your social security number? This is interesting. What's your social security number? I give it. The bailiff walks forward and says, where were you born? I said, Fort Lauderdale. He said, what hospital? I said, Holy Cross on Commercial Boulevard and Federal Highway. The guy said, he's innocent. I was born in 1958 in April in Holy Cross on Fort Lauderdale, and my social security number is four digits off his social security number. He says who he says he is, and they let me go because of this. So about six months later, I'm coming back in the country from another trip, (laughs) and I have Anna, my lovely 22-year-old who was like eight at the time, and we go off to jail again. (laughs) And she goes, Daddy, are we in jail? I say, we are in jail. You know, all the drug dealers and all the people who are trying to bring the snakes in and all the illegal things, that they, they're all there with me. Finally, they let us go. And then I went and I said, I need an appointment. I got a letter from a congressman, a letter from the mayor, a letter, and none of that worked. What I had to do was stand in front of immigration, INS, and answer why I have been in 95 countries. And so they went down the list. And I said, missionary work, missionary work, missionary work, missionary work, missionary work. After about 40 countries, the guy goes, I get it. (laughs) And I'm no longer accused of being an arms dealer. Thank God. You guys pay me enough. I don't need to go do that. But people think we are something we are not sometimes, don't they? Don't people, you're there and they think, oh, you're this. No, you're this. And today we're going to look at a couple of people who the congregation with whom Gaius is a part of thought, there were two people mentioned there, Diostrophes and Demetrius, and they thought they were people that they were not. And John is setting the record straight. Things are not always as they seem to be. And so as we look at this, we will see it. So can we do it? Let's, first of all, let's meet all the five people who are in this letter. So number one, it's the elder. The elder is John. He's the writer. He's the apostle. As I mentioned last week, he's the only one alive of the original disciples at this point. Every other one has been killed. He has left. The the Acts of the Apostles is shut. Paul is dead. Peter is dead. Matthew is dead. Thomas, they're all gone. Persecution has come to the church. John is the only one left. And he writes his letters 
and we think partly because he's a humble man, but partly because he doesn't want anybody to know who he is outside of the recipients. God forbid that letter got stolen or got intercepted. They would say, oh, John, and they would go back. I don't think he really cared for his life, but he knew that they would go back to the church in Ephesus where he wrote it from or go to the other church. So it's the elder. It's written to a man named Gaius. Gaius is the recipient. There are four Gaiuses in the Bible. Gaius is a name like Bob or Bill. Obviously, Bill Mitchell is a common name. And so Gaius is like Bill Mitchell, very common. The three Gaiuses in the book of Acts are probably not this one because that was written probably 30 years before. So this guy would be very old and he's obviously very active. So it's a new guy. We don't know anything about him except what we're gonna learn in a few moments. We can't, we don't know his family. We don't know anything about him. The next guy is Diostrophes. Diostrophes is the troublemaker. He's the guy who's come into this congregation and we'll learn in a moment as a good guy, as a right guy, as the elder, as a good person, in quotes, and he's wreaking havoc among the people. And we'll find out why. And Elizabeth read a few of them and you started laughing because some of those things he does applies to you, doesn't it? That you go, oh my, I did that. Demetrius is the other guy, and he's the good guy. He is probably the bearer of, being bearer meaning the, um, the post person who is bringing this to them, and he is probably coming to help the church. He's a good guy. There's a lot of Demetriuses in the first century. There's a couple in the Bible. We think this is a different one than those, and there's some that are in the folklore of movies, Uh, throughout uh, Christian movies, throughout the years. Demetrius was kind of a name they always threw around. This is none of them. This is an independent guy. And then the last group of people are the brothers, the sisters, the friends, uh, the children. Uh, He uses these names to represent sometimes the congregation that John was a part of, which was the uh, Ephesian church, or the congregation that Gaius was a part of. We don't know, it's probably some daughter church in Turkey, modern day Turkey, what we would call Asia Minor back then. But he just uses the word so that no one else's name appears in it. So what I'd like to do today is go through this very quickly and do it through the people's names. Can we do it? So we're gonna learn about the Bible, learn about the book through the people, if we can do it. So let's start out. So the context, verses one and two is this, is that John (coughs) writes to Gaius, and Gaius is beloved and he's loved. He says, whom I love in the truth. And if you are any familiar with any of John's writings, whether it's the Gospel of John or these three epistles or the book of the Revelation, the five books he wrote, he's always talking about the truth. Are you in the truth or are you not in the truth? We spent a lot of time last week on this and he says, Gaius is in the truth. Verse two is very important and it's a throwaway verse to most of us. It's kind of like, hey, how you doing? Hope you're well, how's the family? That kind of thing you put in a letter when you write a letter, it's kind of that throwaway, you have to do it. Well, let's look at the meaning. He goes, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you that you may be in good health and that it goes well with your soul. That everything, all your circumstances go good, your health is good and your soul is good. That to me is not a throwaway verse. That's pretty serious. Now the problem with this is this. 
that this is the verse, I don't know if any of you come out of a prosperity gospel context at all. Prosperity gospel is the, the belief, and some believe it a lot, some believe it a part, that God's job is to make us successful. That God's job is to make us healthy. That God's job is to make us prosperous, ergo the prosperity gospel. This is the verse that was originally used in that that God wants us that all things go well, that we are healthy, and that our soul is good. So that's the verse they go to. Um, a person who I have a high degree of respect for, but who I don't agree with theologically, is Oral Roberts. He's long gone, but I met him one time. He's, he was such a lovely man. He came to our office doing some things here in Boca. What an incredible, godly man. But I think he was off on this one. But this was the verse he would quote to say that God wants us healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I don't think that's, at least in my experience, what God wants. And I don't think that what the script, God wants us to be godly. God wants us to have a relationship with us. God wants us to disciple other people. There's a lot of things God wants us to do. But when we realize that John wrote this when 11 of his compatriots had all been murdered for the faith, I don't think he's talking about prosperity right here. When his best friends for the last 60 years are all dead and he's the only one alive of that original group, that he's saying, well, God wants us all prosperous when everybody is throughout Asia and North Africa and the Middle East in graves. So, but there is something he is saying here and we're gonna look at that. So those, that's the first. Verse three and four takes us and begins us to talk about Gaius. So we're gonna talk about Gaius, verses three through eight. The first part of it is he gives these incredible words of praise. And I mark this because he says this multiple times in the letter. And I wanna ask you, is this something people say about you? The two things are this. He says, you have a good testimony and you walk in the truth. Is that something that when somebody mentions your name, like when they mentioned my name at the Miami airport, they mentioned me as an arms dealer. That's what I was classed as. Are you classed as someone who has a good testimony? Are you someone who's imitating good versus imitating evil? And if I were to go, do you know so-and-so, and, -so and a, what would they say about you? Well, what John is saying about Gaius is that his friends, Gaius's friends, are saying he has a good testimony. Doesn't mean he's perfect, doesn't mean he's always right, but he has a good testimony. My friends, if you wanna share Christ in this culture that we live in, that if I can say is very Christ-less, have a good testimony. Be a person of your word. Be a person of prayer. Be a person who shares. Be a person who reaches out to people and have a good testimony. Then he continues in verse five with Gaius, and he gives three thoughts here. He gives three very particular parts to his good testimony. He says, first of all, Gaius helps people. He is a people helper. Beloved, it is faithful thing you do in all your efforts for the brothers and sisters 
and the strangers as they are. He is helping people. The reason Gaius is treated so highly is because he is a helper of people. He walks in truth, so he gets this relationship, but he also gets this relationship. If you want to have a good relationship, help people. The second thing is the whole area of hospitality. We don't get that nowadays. We think hospitality is inviting somebody over to dinner, and that's fine, and that is hospitable, but they actually had to invite people into their homes. They didn't have hotels back then. People would come, they would stay, they'd be a part of their home. And Gaius was a person of incredible hospitality. And then at the end in verse eight, it says, therefore we are to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That word support is he was a supporter of the ministry. He helped people, showed hospitality, and then he supported other people who helped people, showed hospitality, and all the rest. See, this is a beautiful thing about a church. You and I can't do everything. It's funny, sometimes I try to do everything, and I've kind of long learned that I can't. People go, go here, do this, help them. I go, no. I can do what I can do, but you need to do what you can do. You see, and then... You know, we give money, we give resources, we give time, we give energy so others can go and do the same thing. Why do we want our church to grow? Just so we have more seats filled? No, we want it so that we have more people who are helping the community, showing hospitality, supporting the ministry, walking in the truth. Do you see that? That's the beauty of it. It, Bigger's not better because you can just have a lot of people and say the wrong thing, but you want to bring people in so that they can do more things, so that we can have a greater effect in our community here in and around South Florida and the rest of the world. And for those of you online, you may be anywhere in the world, this applies to your community as well. You may be helping people, showing hospitality, and supporting the ministry of wherever you are. And for those of you who live around us, thank you for supporting us even as you are online. Now, there's a problem. The problem is named diastrophes. Now, I know it's hard to pronounce. Can, let's all say it together. Diastrophes. Now, forget the name, because the name is not important. It's the attributes he has that are important. He is condemned. Why? It says here in verse 9, number one, he puts himself first. Don't you just hate people that put themselves first? God calls us to humility and not to pride, putting yourself first is being a person of pride. And he puts himself first. This is how he does it, I'm the leader. He's probably one of the smartest people in the congregation. Obviously he's well thought of, he's well versed, he's well educated, probably has some money. And we go, yeah, he's a good guy. So he puts himself first. And John says, putting yourself first is not the answer. And then number two, He does not acknowledge authority. Now here it says our authority. So this makes me think that this church is a daughter church to the Ephesus church as well, where they were under the authority of the elder, John the disciple, now apostle. So here he is, he's in charge, and certainly he was probably the highest ranking person in all the church at that point in time because everybody else was gone and yet he would not, Diostrophes would not submit to authority. Why do I need to submit to authority if I'm number one? 
If I put myself first, I don't have to submit to authority. But God tells us throughout the Bible, throughout Ephesians, throughout the writings of Paul and Jesus and others in the Old Testament, what? That we are to humble ourselves and let God lift us up. If God wants us to be in front of people, if God wants you to be the head of something, good. Let God do it. You show some humility and see what happens. Because if not, what does the Bible say about pride? You will fall. A haughty spirit, you'll tumble. Now, what's next? He goes on. This is, I love this. You know, people say you're not allowed to say certain words in public. One of the words I'm not allowed to say, there's two words besides curse words, of course, is the word foolish and the word stupid. And every time I say those words, I get people mad at me. I'm thinking, really? What does it say here? He talked nonsense. If I could put that in kind of modern English, he talked stupidness. It's bad stuff. It was foolish what he said. He's talking foolishness, but because he is number one, well-respected, again, smart, articulate, probably has money, probably supporting the church, all the rest, his foolishness has been considered good. And that's not good. We need to understand just because someone is powerful and says something that we need to judge it against something, and I would say we judge it against the Bible. So, again, as I always say, if I say something that's against the book, go with the book. And if someone else says something who's pretending to be a leader in the church, we're not talking about a pagan here. This isn't Nero talking at this point, or a Herod or an Agrippa. Obviously, they're talking nonsense when it comes to these kind of things. It is someone inside the church. And here's the other thing. This is amazing. He's not content. Wow, you got quiet for a moment. Can I tell you, the more you have, the less content you are? I'm not saying you. I'm not pointing your finger. People come up to me and go, you told me I'm not content. I'm just saying human nature is the more you have, the less content you are. Because as you see the more you have, you realize they have more than we have. And so I'm not as content with what I have because they have more. And then you're comparing with each other. We talked about that last week. You've got to stop comparing yourself with someone else. Because what God has given you is a set of resources. Your own, and, and it's, it's interesting. I, um, I was talking to a guy who's a friend of mine who's an incredible, godly business person, and he donates a lot of his money. He never graduated high school. Never graduated high school. He's a friend of mine, lives down in Broward, and he's always putting himself down because he's not content with his education, because he's not as, he goes, I'm not as educated as you. I go, you know far more than I know. I got the books down. I've got the other things down. But please understand what God has given you. Now, yes, you need to increase and you need to do better and you need to do other things. And I'm pro-education, obviously. But please understand what God has given you and the resources he's given you and the intellect he's given you, do something with and be content with it. I remember a few years ago, I was in Haiti uh, visiting our missionaries, Bruce and Deb Robinson, who we love dearly, and our, our maintenance guy, Don Cowley, and I went down there. Well, if you know, Don's retired and he's moved away, 
But Don was one of the smartest guys when it came to mechanics, fixing machines and fixing small motors. Well, in Haiti, the whole country runs on small motors, these two-cycle motors. I mean, the whole country runs on them. Most of the place doesn't have electricity, so they run on these two-cycle motors. Do you know what I know how to fix two-cycle motors? Nothing. So I go to Haiti in the place, and they are hovering around Don. And I'm over in a corner doing nothing because I do have no intellect when it comes to that. You see, what they didn't need, they didn't need a preacher at that point. They needed somebody who could fix the machines. God has gifted you uniquely, and you need to be content with that and not look across to someone else, even within your family. It's an amazing thing. And then, lastly, he stops being hospitable to people. We just said that one of the great things of Gaius is that he has hospitality. And he stops being hospitable and, and, this is interesting, he kicks people out who are hospitable. This is what happens. We like people around us who are like us. And when people do things that are not like us, we want to move them away. Now, he was a leader, so he could kick them out. A lot of people nowadays go to another church. They, I have people that come to me and go, why do you teach the Bible so much? I don't know. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> Why are you so Christ-centered? Why do you always talk about Christ? Well, because I think that's the story that we're talking about here. Well, I'd rather just talk about good things and good people and good families. I like talking about good things, good people and good families, but, and people leave our church. Now, what we're going to discover next week or sometime in the book of Jude is there are some very hard subjects. There's heaven and hell. And people will move away when we talk about heaven and hell or angels and demons or things like that because I feel very uncomfortable that the God I have made is not the God that's in the Bible. And we gotta make sure that we haven't created our own God, that we worship someone who is like ourselves. I'm a guy that loves love. I want a God that just loves. I don't want a God who condemns. But that's not what the Bible says. Because I didn't make God. God is God and I am not. Right? So when God says he condemns some people, but he loves everybody and wants them all to come to repentance, I believe that. But what Diostrophes was doing is, if you didn't agree with him, he was kicking you out of the church. And what he was doing was not right. And it was wrong. And then we get to the crux. My Bible turned the page to verse 11, and we talk about Demetrius. His name's not until verse 12, but he says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. What he could have said here, if he was wanting to be very parochial, he could have said, do not imitate Diostrophes, imitate Demetrius. But instead, he says, don't imitate evil, imitate good, because even Diostrophes might do something good and Demetrius might someday do something bad, so don't imitate them. Imitate what is good, not what was evil. Even Paul said, imitate me, Paul said, as I imitate Christ. So if you are gonna imitate someone, make sure they're imitating Christ, 
they're imitating Christ, you can imitate them, but be careful that we're not just becoming followers of people, but we're becoming followers of Christ. And this again, he goes and he goes, Demetrius has received a good testimony. Now, this is interesting, he goes, from everywhere, from the truth itself, and from me, John. Is that a good testimony? The testimony is people are saying he's doing good. The scriptures are confirming that what he is doing is good. And I, John, as the leader of it all, says he is doing good. That is a good testimony. And that is what we should be seeking is the testimony, not of people, because then you're just getting accolades and happiness, but really that what you're doing is what this book says. Because if the book says it and you're doing it, you're having a good testimony from the Bible. And I tell you what, nowadays, if people get upset at me, I kind of, I don't like that. I'm a kind of a people pleaser kind of person. But I tell you what, if they get upset at me because what I say in the Bible is what they're upset at, I'm okay at that. You have to be okay that if you're speaking what the Bible says and people disagree with you, you gotta be okay with that. Because if you're not okay with that, you will never, ever, ever speak out the truth about the Bible. So this week, uh, Elizabeth and I had a grand opportunity. We've developed a friendship with some lawyers, and yes, you can befriend lawyers. Um, That's a joke, David, joke here. I have a son who's a lawyer. I've got another son who's about to become a lawyer. I've got lawyers everywhere, and we're filled with them in this congregation, and I love lawyers. I'm one of the few people that actually love lawyers. Attorneys, excuse me. So we were invited by a law firm to come and speak at their meeting, at their monthly big meeting of all the lawyers and paralegals, Elizabeth and me. Now, the law firm was a Jewish law firm. I'm a pastor. She's a Christian worker and leader and all the things and writes books about it all, and they want us to come. They did not want us to come and talk about good things. We came and we talked about Jesus. And I thought, here I am in a conference room, this large kind of meeting room, conference room. Everybody, I'm in a suit. We're all in suits. We're all dressed up. And I'm thinking, I got to tell the truth. You got to tell the truth. And it was amazing afterwards. My last point, you know, I did the, my four points. Life is not fair, but God is good. Life is a gift, and God is in control. Now, I'm telling a group of Jewish lawyers that God is in control. And it was an amazing event. That next day, we were handed a card that every single person in the room wrote on to thank us for being there. And the, the words of a, and the ability to share Christ, you go, I, I, I can't share Christ there. Well, you know what? We shared our story of Christ in our life. That's a beautiful thing. If you can't, if you say, I just can't quote Bible verses, then quote what God has done in your life. That's called a testimony. Demetrius had a testimony that was filled with the truth. So as you share your testimony, share the truth. 
I mean, sometimes you share a testimony like being accused of being an arms dealer. That has nothing to do with the truth. I mean, it is not true. I'm not an arms dealer, but you know, you go, it's not about the Bible, but share what God is doing in your life. And when you share what God is doing for, through your life, it changes other people's lives. Just try it. And you know what? If they reject it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting this. And I tell you what, this can stand on its own. And don't be afraid. And then he ends, our time is up. He ends with a benediction at the end. It's a great benediction, similar to the one we had last week. I had much to write to you, verse 13, but I would rather not write to you with pen and ink. Part of that is because he doesn't want to get too specific because there's persecution everywhere and this letter could be intercepted. But I hope to see you soon. There's an incredible importance to the community of believers here. John has more, but he's waiting. And then he goes on at the end and he says, peace be to you. The friends greet you and greet the friends. Again, the friends are my congregation and your congregation. I'm just not gonna tell you that it's the believers in Jesus Christ greet you and make sure they've been greeted back and forth and, and that because of the persecution. Now, what do we learn from all this? Let me share a story about a man you've never heard of, probably, except a few. I shared this at City Leads, so the few of you who were there had heard it. It's a man named Thomas Midgley. Thomas Midgley was one of the smartest men of the early 20th century here in the United States. Again, a name you don't know. And he was a uh, engineer with General Motors. And at the turn of the century, in the early 20th century, cars were being developed and the engines of the cars, and they were starting to go from just five and 10 miles an hour to real speeds. And the problem they were having is the pinging of the cylinder engines with the gasoline. Uh, you newer ones who don't have pinging in cars. Remember that, the interruption of the pistons and it would, it would ping and exhaust would come out and they couldn't figure it out as they were trying to get a smooth ride in all the cars, we're talking all the makes, and get it to go faster, the cars to go faster. It was getting rougher and so people weren't going fast. And so he was tasked by General Motors to find a way to stop the pinging in pistons. And he did. He found it. He found an additive that could go into gas that would cause it to have a smooth ride. And that additive was lead. And leaded gas for the next probably 60 years was being used. Now there's a problem with leaded gas is it's poisonous and it causes pollution, and it causes fumes that when inhaled affect your intellect. And so 60 years later, we stopped leaded gas. You can't buy it anymore, right? I mean, maybe some special thing, but lead, that's why we don't have leaded paint either in homes. We don't use lead in that way. It might be used industrially, but it's not used in homes anymore and in cars anymore because the best invention and discovery that was made in the early 20th century became an environmental disaster, smog. He then, he died before all the leaded gas issues came out. He died in the 1950s. After he left General Motors, he went to DuPont, 
he was a chemist as well. He was a brilliant man. And there was a problem, another problem in the early 20th century was refrigeration. Refrigeration was put together by gases that when they would put the machines together and all the things, and obviously I am not a scientist, so I'm giving you the wrong words. I have scientists in the room who could give you the right words, but you couldn't do refrigeration in the domestic home setting because it was too volatile. In other words, flames could cause fires, etc. He invented what would be known as Freon. Freon. He invented Freon. He invented leaded gasoline and Freon. Freon allows you to have air conditioning and it allows you to refrigerate foods. South Florida exists because of Thomas Midgley. <laughs> we do. You wouldn't be here, I'm sorry. I would be here because our family's been here for a hundred and some years. We'd be here by ourselves. The rest of you came because this building is air conditioned. But what did he, we discover? that Freon destroys the ozone layer. So the two most important discoveries of the first half of the 20th century led to two of the worst environmental disasters in the second half of the 20th century. It's called unintended consequences. There are things that trail what you do even though you may not think of it. Now, what was interesting is they knew that leaded gas was bad, but it solved the problem. Solving the problem was more important than the consequences back then because there were only a few thousand cars. Now there are millions and millions and millions and hundreds of millions of cars. There are consequences. When Freon was done, there were only a few refrigerators. Now there's hundreds of millions of refrigerators and air conditioners around the world, and it is destroying, and that's why we don't use Freon anymore. What is the point? There are consequences to what you do. What you do has consequences. Who you imitate has consequences. What you imitate has consequences. Is it for good or is it for evil? Again, forget the names, but are you gonna be like a Diastrophes who puts himself first, not content, puts away people that don't agree with him? Are you gonna be like Demetrius that everyone says he has a good testimony? The Bible says he has a good testimony. His leader says he has a good testimony. Whom will you be like? Imitating evil or imitating good? And I would suggest as we enter into the Christmas season over the next few weeks that we understand imitating good and not imitating evil. Amen? Let's pray together.